0: It's funny going back through them though, isn't it? Yeah, it it's is like, actually. Oh my god. Yeah. This was this year. There were big news events that really did dominate the landscape for like a week or two at a time, which is a difficult position for us to be in, in a way, right? Because mm. if a topic is being covered from every angle, it's like, what? How do we add value to it?
1: Yeah. Do we sit on it for a little while, see how it pans out, or do we jump into it yeah. early, but then risk being swamped by the news, you know, by other stories about it? Yeah. Or... Um, Just repeating the same or, talking or points. Or ignore it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your name's Emile Donovan. Yeah. And my name is Sharon Brett Kelly, and this is our last episode this, of 2022. And
0: this is the intro.
1: This is the intro. This is the intro, <laughs> this is also everybody. they
0: asked us to do an intro.
1: Farewell episode for you, yeah, Emile. That's right. But we've just been chatting about how we almost lurched from one huge story to another to another to another mm. in 2022, and then I suppose the other thing is the underlying huge story was mm. COVID just lurking there in the background the whole time.
0: Well, it's amazing, isn't it? Like even now, every week you could do a, you could do a story on COVID if you wanted to. It's almost three years since it it got here, and yet still, it is... You're right, it's still the biggest story in town, really, mm. in, in terms of the residual effects, what they've been on the world, what they've been on on New Zealand, how the rest of the world's sort of coping. Underneath everything, there's like a foundational story to so much of what's happening in the world at the moment, and it's this it's pandemic of, that's still yeah. going, that's mm. still going.
1: Um, but, but actually, the three that I... Because we've been, both been asked to choose three of our favourites about each other's um, podcasts... Mm. And so, so, so many of yours, Emile. But so the three that I have chosen, uh, none of them are about COVID. Really? Is <laughs> no? that right?
0: Well, only one of mine of yours is about COVID. Is
1: that right? Okay. So that's kind of interesting, even though you did some really good ones. And in fact, um, our top podcast or one of our top co- podcasts, most listened to podcasts of 2022 was one of your COVID ones. Oh. Yeah. I can't remember which one no, because th- we, each of us did so many. <laughs> I
0: did. <laughs> yeah, I think we both cranked out about 110 episodes. This year, so.
1: um, but but I have to say, one of my favourites of yours was, the title was No Mining for Diamonds. You'll remember this. Yeah, this remember is about the Australian one. netballers mm. and their revolt over the sponsorship by the mining magnate Gina Reinhart. The reason why I thought this was one of your great podcasts was the talent. Mm. Um, you know, this was an excellent was explainer Jenny. by Jenny Woods, yeah. who's the Sky Sport netball commentator. And it was not only about the team's refusal to wear the uniforms with uh, that showed Hancock prospecting uh, emblazoned on them, mm. but it was also packed full of details about Australian sport and sexism and the fractious relationship between the Players Association and Netball Australia, player power and sponsorship, and I think it was one – in a way, it was one of the big themes of this year is the growing prominence of women's sport but also the this issue over how is it being funded. Mm.
0: Yeah. I, I, I find it fascinating, this area where sport really intersects with social, wider social issues and, the, and the, also the commercial realities of sport are sort of placed front and centre, you know. I'm really glad that you pointed out that this podcast really runs a lot on Jenny. Um, All that I had to do really was, was, you know, ask her questions and boom, she was away. And what? because, I mean, you, you know this as well, that... A podcast can be about the most interesting thing in the world, but if the person who you're talking to isn't, A, interesting themselves, and B, willing to talk openly about stuff, then it can, it can get very dreary. And what I really admired about how Jenny approached this podcast was um, she said what she felt, and that's actually really rare, particularly in the area of sport, because there are lots of dueling tensions. You don't want to piss people off.
1: It's, it's really complicated, but I think what is harder... For netball, and I keep coming back to this, is that it's not a wash with money. It you, needs
0: the money. You yeah. don't
1: have sponsors lining up. If only you did. Mm. I I just wish people's eyes could be open to the fact or the opportunity. That, that netball offers. It's, you know, often when people come to the game or or watch it for the first time, particularly, um, you know, I work in commentary and you might have a, a director that's not directed netball before. Mm. And in fact, at the recent Commonwealth Games, I, I had a guy who was used to directing rugby and he says, oh, wow, this is fast. And I felt like saying to him, what did you expect? <laughs> you know? And and what was interesting about Jenny is, you know, she's been she's been covering netball for for a long, long time, and yet she felt that this decision was maybe not the right decision. But in the end, uh, there was a, a there was a good outcome. I mean, Hancock prospecting, uh, Gina Reinhardt pulled out. That's right. And then they, you know, it was like the sport was in crisis. But then quite quickly the Victorian government stepped in with a deal and now they're their new sponsor. And it's a very exciting deal.
0: And I think um, this wider issue of there's big money in sport, big money often comes from big companies and big companies often in whatever area they're in, have questionable records, whether it's in terms of human rights or um, environment or their positions on social issues or cultural issues. Uh, and I don't think that's going... I mean, the World Cup's going on in the background right now, the Football World Cup. Um, more issues than you can shake a stick at there. Um, so I don't think that this wider topic is going anywhere, and I think these cases will become much more common you know, mm. as we go into the future. It was funny how we were talking at the beginning about how, like, different big news stories sort of dominated discourse for a period of time and then the next one kind of came along because it's been a long time since the Parliament protests happened. Um, I feel like maybe that distance has kind of numbed us to what a big story they were, but they absolutely dominated the news every day for about three weeks, right? And um, I think the pod that you did when you went down to Wellington is probably my favourite pod that you've ever done of The Detail. The background to this story, to you going down to Wellington, was Sarah Robson, our producer, had just started as producer. Um, we We were still working out of newsroom at that time. We weren't allowed in the RNZ buildings. And we weren't really sure what was happening with this protest. We sort of armed and armed about whether we would even go down and cover it, remember? And I think it was a pretty spur-of-the-moment decision. We were all in the office on like a Monday or a Tuesday, and you were like, oh, okay, all right, we, we need to go down there. We need to go down there. Um, let's book a flight. I'll go down tomorrow.
1: Actually, I landed in Wellington that morning, mm. very early that morning, and something had happened. Oh, I know. There was a big standoff at dawn between the police and some of the protesters. The police and the protesters, that's right. And so, I, uh, you know, originally it was oh the because the other discussion we had, Emil, was um, how safe would it be yeah. for me to go in there on on my own? Yeah. And so we teed up uh, Anna field from Stuff to meet me so that there were two of us going through there. People, it was like being in a campground in a way because everyone was out cleaning their teeth yeah. and feeding the dogs and um, a bit of chit chat. And so, but my my heart was pounding actually because I really didn't know what was ahead of me. Anyway, a woman said hello to me and we started chatting and and that just really kicked it off. And it was a day of so many surprises. From the people I met yeah. and some of the hostility but also some of I mean one guy wanted to give me a big hug and I just said oh no um, even even my best <laughs> friends I'd, I'm not hugging at the moment
0: <laughs> There was a really interesting like irony there as well I think in that you faced a lot of hostility there. I think at one stage you and Anna talk about how you've gone through a couple of checkpoints and it was so much trouble that you actually just put away your microphones for the third one because it was like it, it's not really worth it there was a lot of anti-media stuff there but many of the people that you talked to were very happy to to talk to you and I think it was it showcased your interviewing skill in that you were very open-hearted and open-minded to what people were saying and non-judgmental and like there's one moment where you're talking to this guy and another bloke comes in about halfway through the interview and the guy who you're talking to says no 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 bugger off she's she's interviewing us um she's (laughs) she's just from a podcast he says she's just from a podcast (laughs) And she, <laughs> and she wants to get our point of view, and then he continued to sort of talk really openly and freely, and it, it was, yeah, it, I just, I found that was really fascinating. Yeah, well, he was the hugger, was he? He was yeah, the hugger, yeah.
1: yeah. So what, when you say you try to bring peace and love, and you try to contain it, if there's yeah. some violence, what what do you do something... Actually, physically, what do you do? Um,
2: so, so what happens is, is sometimes with the overwhelming emotion and energy going around um, at the front line, because there's obviously policemen and women. Uh, we, police women's the wrong. word, we call them peace officers, you know. So the peace officers are there at the front. We're giving them love, and we just stand there and we're holding our ground.
1: I have heard some reports that, you know, the peaceful side of this is being overtaken by the protesters who are violent or angry or throw you know human waste on the police that kind of thing
2: i i can definitely see where a lot of people come from what's Where's actually happening no no this woman's just come from auckland bro it's just a podcast she's trying to get our point of view <clears throat> Thank you. and see it's people like that who just walk past who are still caught up in the emotion right now you know they need to just go and take themselves away have a meditate breathe do some yoga, have a cup of tea, you know, and come back to that place of love.
1: What do you do normally?
2: As a traveller, I've been going around doing a lot of orchard work with a, with the lack of foreigners in the country. I'm actually double-vaxxed, and I've made the choice to be here because I think we should all have the right to choose what we put into our bodies. Okay, great to
1: talk to you. Thank Beautiful. you. But I suppose talking about something that's quite personal and completely away from that topic... That I liked of yours, because it was a very personal one, was your one on pepeha. That was pretty special, I thought, because as you pointed out, as a Pākehā man who doesn't really engage or hasn't really engaged much with te ao Māori, talking about maybe working on your own pepeha is quite a nerve-wracking thing. You know, you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to be disrespectful. You don't want to make a fool of yourself. But also, you're putting yourself out there, really. You're not just doing it in this one on one thing. You're putting yourself out there as, you know, in a podcast. And also, it was very personal for Stacey Morrison, Mm -hmm. who is such a, you know, a broadcasting professional. But it was lovely to hear her personal story as well.
0: Yeah. I I think um, I got a lot of feedback on that one. Particularly from people who, because I did a little Heart at the end, mm. which was was based on one from the Itangata website. I don't really know much about my ancestors, and this might sound a bit brutal, but I, I don't really care that that much. You know, my my ancestors are from Ireland and in Scotland and in England, which is a world away. And I guess my connection to my family is really to my to my New Zealand family, my New Zealand whānau. Mm. And so when the history of your lineage and the people who came before you is such a rich part of te Māori, like how do you approach that? Should you even approach it in a, in a similar way or a sim- with a similar philosophy when you're a Pākehā? Should Should a Pākehā even do a Pākehā? I thought these were interesting questions that people probably think to themselves but maybe feel a bit awkward asking. Um, and you're quite right, Stacy. Stacey, Stacey who, who has Pākehā, you know lineage as well i think one of her parents is Pakistani and she understood she was very open hearted about it and she was a very good and generous interviewee
3: when we speak to this we don't do it on week 1 like so if we are mm. working with people for 6 weeks or something we'll make we'll do it about week 3 because it brings up lots of questions for different people and feelings. Uh, So delving into who you are, who your ancestors are, where you connect to, whether you know who your people are or not, these are big questions and big feelings. And so respectfully, we try to get to know people and establish rapport and help them know that it's you know, we have trust before we start going into the stuff because you can see people's eyes well up or they're confused and they go, I mean, I don't know. My people came from Denmark, but I don't really relate to that. Mm -hmm. And so all of those questions or ways of expressing identity, I think, need to be approached with respect Mm -hmm. and recognising the mana of people. And so, therefore, I wouldn't say that it's just like, you know, just check in insert name here.
0: Yeah. The second one that I wanted to talk about of yours was it'll be fascinating to hear your take on this because it was the Peter Ellis one that you did with with Mel Reid uh-huh. about um, the Peter Ellis case when he was the, 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 his convictions, his convictions were, were overturned, were they quashed? quashed. Were quashed. quashed? Yeah. Yeah. After he died, of course. I guess the starting point for this one is that when all of this was happening in the moment, I was a baby, you know, I I was born in 1991, that was when it was kind of happening, right, and over the next, what, 30 years, I suppose it's turned out, a lot of people who lived in New Zealand at that time, it was a real watershed moment for them, you know, one of the trials of the century kind of thing, and... This is such a wild case when you look at the details of it, the things that he and his colleagues were were being accused of, Peter Ellison. And and it was fascinating, too, to see it here from Melanie Reid, who formed a real relationship with Peter Ellison, really got to know him and, and to hear about her experiences with him. I mean, in a sense, it was a really interesting interview, I think, for a journalism student to... Listen to, to hear Mel talking about how she had her own feelings and thoughts and learned about him and got to know him while still reporting on the story.
1: I felt privileged, actually, to talk to Mel. I spoke to her only a few minutes after that announcement was made, Mm -hmm. that his convictions had been quashed. And, um, It helped me understand um, how much this was a part of Mel's life as well. Mm. I mean, she was going, regularly seeing him at the prison, if she could, or, you know, staying in contact with him. She was organising Christmas presents for the children of his fellow prisoners because he asked her to do that. So she was, you know, it's beyond what, what most journalists would do. Yeah, But that's what makes her such an incredible investigative journalist if you reported on him in that way I'm just trying to think how did you connect with him though Um, I I became really quite friendly with him I became fond of him as well like as a friendship well as soon as I started spending any time with him I mean I wasn't drinking sherry with him every night but we we used to do it on Friday nights and he used to do it quite often but this was while you were covering the court case right well I'm Yes, I really wanted to, to do an interview with him, but in the course of actually
3: getting him to trust me, I drank quite a lot of sherry with him and smoked a hell of a lot of cigarettes. Then I just said, "Look, if you, if we do do
1: this interview, you know, I I'll, I'll do everything that I can to make sure that, you know, what you say is put out there, and that, and that even if you go to jail, that we can keep telling your story because we'll have these interviews." Well, here's a segue and a half. Body mass index.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Funny I, I suppose you think, oh, how strange that I picked this one. But but it really stuck out to me because it's been around for such a long time. In fact, it's been what I learned from the podcast that you did on it was it's been around for nearly two hundred 200 years. years? Isn't that
0: unbelievable? And that's
1: what I loved about it. It was such a great history lesson um, about something that is really important to us. And how it's full of faults and, you know, we're sort of being told, oh, be wary of it, it's loaded with all kinds of issues. But at the same time... We're hearing from a nutrition guru about it who's, who defends it mm-hmm. and and I just thought it was it was excellent in so many ways in that you you spoke to two great people once again stuffs Rachel Thomas mm-hmm. who did the investigation, looking right into this the body mass index and Sir Jim Mann, who is the absolute expert mm-hmm. really at, from Otago university and uh, you know what? What I learnt from that was, screeds and screeds of stuff, really. But what I, <laughs> one of the special bits of it, uh, was was the part towards the end where you talk about what happened when you put in Richie McCaw's mm. statistics into the Ministry of Health's own BMI calculator, and it flashed up, "You are a very unhealthy weight," mm. and the response of Jim Mann he says that he was cute, acutely embarrassed as someone who is a, is, yeah. is a defender of the body mass index, and that he was, as soon as this interview was over, he was going to go and sort that out. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm going to call the manager, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, the reason that I ended up doing this was partly um, Rachel's excellent piece and stuff, which provided a really good hook. But I know quite a few doctors and I've talked to them about the BMI and... Their idea of what it's for is, here is this tool. It's just a tool, and it's a very rudimentary tool. It's as rudimentary a tool as you kind of have. There are so many flaws with it. There are so many, like, no doctor worth their salt is ever going to put any sort of undue influence on on the BMI as a tool for diagnosing anything but as a wider healthcare tool, and many healthcare tools are like this, as a wider healthcare tool to tell you a little bit of information from a little bit of information. It is and remains useful, even if it was conceived 200 years ago mm. by some French mathematician
1: who wasn't even interested in <laughs> he wasn't health. Even a <laughs> he was he just was a, into he was statistics. an astronomer. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> oh,
4: there is. Yeah. It is a very useful indicator from the point of view of global and national uh, public health. In terms of the individual clinical context, it is still useful because it is still universally regarded by experts as the best simple measure of body fatness. But there are limitations, uh, and I think it's important to be aware of those limitations. And if one is talking about a rugby player or somebody who has a very high level of muscular development, they are going to have uh, BMIs that are in the obese range. And the question that I so often get asked is therefore Does that mean the obese range that is over 30, and there are plenty of rugby players, by the way, who have BMIs of 33, does that mean even uh, uh, in the obese range a BMI BMIs useless? The short answer is no, because there is a very small proportion of the New Zealand population that meets that definition of high muscular development. So for the vast majority of the population, that doesn't apply.
0: The last one of yours that I wanted to talk about, Managed Retreat in Matatā. The, the the bones of this story, and actually one of the most impressive things that you kind of did with this podcast, was actually outline what had happened in this story, which is like 17 years old. It's gone through many twists and turns, but basically the bones of it were Matatā is a small town in the Bay of Plenty. Back in 2005, there was a massive downpour of rain. Um, it caused almost like a natural dam to form and then break and all this debris swept through the town and there were a a few dozen, I think, of 36, 37 houses that it turned out were just unlivable, really. And so the decision was made eventually, after a very long time, to move these people on, to to execute a, a managed retreat of the people who lived in these houses and to buy them out and to relocate them somewhere else. And I think it's still, am I right in saying, the only time that there's been a managed retreat in New Zealand?
1: Yeah, yeah. But, of course, there's a lot more talk about it now.
0: Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, you you just think, you know, areas of Wellington and South Dunedin and all all over the place. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, you've just been through Mm. them. And so here you saw so many of the wider issues that we're going to have to grapple with. You actually went out there. So like, what, what was it like reporting on that story in the first place?
1: Well, funnily enough, I'm very familiar with Matata yeah. because because it's in my... the place that, that I grew up, the Bay Plenty, mm. It's just up the road. So when I travel back to Ohopi beach further further down the coast to visit Farno I go through there and it is such a beautiful place it's the road is one of the most spectacular coastal roads it's the Matatā Strait when I went there to do the interviews there was one house left and it was all surrounded by this highway fencing and with danger signs everywhere and there's still a huge sign by the side of the road that says um you know, beware uh, your land could be taken at any moment, or that kind of. Mm. Those aren't the exact words, but it, it helps you understand that this has been such a fraught issue mm. in this little town for years and years and years. Mm. So, so for me, that was that was a good experience. I love going back to the Bay Plenty and doing stories because I um, have grown up with them. Yeah. Yeah. Could anything have been done better to make it you know, less traumatic for the residents? Uh, yeah, I think there are definitely things could be done a lot better than what we did. You know, 17 years from the time of the event to now, and, and the last house, as you can see, we've just acquired, um, isn't reasonable. You know, it's not a reasonable time period for people to be subjected to uncertainty, mm-hmm. stress about another event happening while they're still living here, uncertainty about funding packages, and so... You know, what we had to address was that there was no formal risk management policy in place. There needs to be a shared understanding at the community level about individual and collective risk. You know, at what point um, is it unreasonable for a person to stay and put members of the community at risk trying to rescue them. That is it, Emile. That's us. That's it. That's the detail for today. Shall we try and jointly remember what the um, that ending is that we have to say every day, but I can't remember off the top all of right. my head? All right,
0: all right. I'll do the first line. Okay. Okay. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. And
1: I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism...
0: Funded through New Zealand On Air... And produced by Newsroom. Mm. Newsroom
1: for RNZ. You can
0: get us downloaded free to your mobile, mobile device. Mobile every,
1: every weekday. Week
0: from e- any podcast platform. platform. Any any of them. Um, Today's episode, engineered by one of Jeremy Veal, Jeremy Ansell, Rangi Powick William Saunders, Mark Chesterman, Flo Wilson, Phil Bench.
1: Bonnie Harrison is... Our very talented and fearless associate producer, and Sarah Robson is our very multi-skilled and extremely patient producer.
0: Magnificent, yeah. And
1: Emil, we're going to miss you a heck of a lot. We're going to miss your intellect and the way you master music, mm. and how you bring beautiful tones to your podcasts. Well,
0: thank you. It's been great. It's been great fun. with mm. the details. So yeah, really appreciate that. Kakite wa i